You're listening to WALT. Homemade radio. You're listening to Baltimoreans. The home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hey, look at that. We got the intro right this time. You know, you know, it's only like we did it 107 the other time. I think it would be a little ground in there, but whatever. Baltimore. How are you, Sam? I, oh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm, I'm feeling excited because what the Baltimoreans don't know is that last week when we abruptly and without warning returned from isolation and abandonment to put an episode into the world... What they don't know, Alan, is that the episode appeared several days later than it was intended to (laughs) because it had been so long since we released one that I didn't remember how to upload it. (laughs) And as a result of that, um, there was a, a brief and terrifying moment when I had this like series of thoughts like, I spent so much of my life for so many years pretty much solely focused on how and when to upload this podcast. Now I don't remember how to do it. Can anything good stay? That last bit was admittedly a bit of a jump, um, existentially speaking, but that's also kind of my specialty. So so our, our trenchant and I would say incredibly timely um, baseball analysis during the winter when there's a lockout you had to wait an extra 72 hours to get it. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> How are you? That, that, that incredibly important, I would say, um, uh, immediately obsolete, effectively, because so many different things happened in baseball from the time we recorded to the time we uploaded it. Yes, yeah, somehow, even despite the fact that while this should be one of the busiest seasons of baseball news of the entire year, um, somehow, despite the fact that it is incredibly slow it still moved faster than our analysis <laughs> <laughs> well actually let's let's jump into that because right now today when we record uh which is monday january 24th so you'll know when this thing shows up on thursday that the same the <laughs> same problem happened again um monday january 24th allegedly today um Major League Baseball is sitting down with the Players Association to see if they can, for their second meeting, the first one lasted, I believe, seven minutes. Is that correct? It was something uh, absurd like that, yeah. Less, less time than it takes for um, people to change pitchers. Um, but they're sitting down again to hopefully hack out what, and I, Baltimoreans, I've looked, I've gone in here, I've tried to just understand um, what the problems are here. There doesn't seem to be a lot of daylight between the two negotiating positions. <laughs> they seem to be pretty close to me. I mean, obviously, clearly, there's a lot of legalese here in between, but I, I'm I'm struggling to discern um, why a lockout was needed here. It looks like we're talking about um, the difference between a uh, the 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 tax starting you know, at 220 million or 245 million, we're talking about like a slightly different clock on team ownership of uh, prospects, maybe some incentives to keep the 
teams from keeping their best players in the minors for longer just so that they can like, you know, have team control for slightly longer. Um, but it, it, it doesn't, it seems like these are not positions that uh, to, to the layperson seem radically different. Yeah. That you couldn't, you know, figure it out if you just locked yourself in a room for a couple hours. Well, locked, isn't that a curious verb you've decided to use there, Mr. <laughs> Smith? Because here, here's the part of it I don't understand. Now, obviously, as anyone who's ever listened to even 40 seconds of this podcast knows, you and I are both uh, fairly wild-haired, progressive-type individuals. So obviously, sure. we would tend to take more pro-labor positions, um, stated for the record. However... Just at a word level, I understand why the owners of a thing, uh, the owners of a business, might lock out the employees of that business. Just at a word level, forget about politics, forget about policy. Mm-hmm. If the, if the, and, and I understand why the employees would go on strike. If they feel like they are being mistreated or undervalued by ownership, they should have the right to go on strike in the name of protecting those things uh, or, or, or speaking up on behalf of their values. And in the event that the employees were being wildly irresponsible or negligent, I could understand right. why the owners would lock those employees out of this hypothetical business. Please explain to me <laughs> why the owners felt the need to take the step of locking out the players the owners already have the better end of the deal. Like it's widely known that in the last collective bargaining agreement, the players gave away too much and the owners basically, you know, quote unquote, won the negotiation. The players are now looking to even that out slightly, though, as you have said, it, it doesn't seem like this is an unbridgeable gap here. And yet the owners took the wildly aggressive step of locking out the players, basically implicitly saying, listen, you incredibly talented, entertaining bunch that has kept the sport magnetic and enjoyable (laughs) despite a global pandemic. We can't have this tomfoolery. What is the tomfoolery? Like, can you please put on your corporate overlord hat? Alan. Sure. Your, sure. Your Gilded well, Age robber baron uh, I'm gonna, tunic. I'm going to draw <laughs> as much as I can on the open letter posted by uh, Commissioner of Baseball Robert D. Manford Jr. Okay. on the official MLB website. Yes. And I'm going to read between the lines as much as I can. I think the reason for it being now, I mean, also, this is a sanctimonious letter where uh, <laughs> the the the, the, the robber baron in question um, takes great, great strides to seem as reasonable and friendly. And gosh, I don't understand why this hasn't already happened as he possibly can. But I think the reason is um, the old collective bargaining agreement was going to expire. And as far as ownership can tell, this was going to happen. So it's better to preempt it before the season starts than it is to lose games and a World Series. I, so, I respectfully think, I have think a that, better idea. 
Absolutely. But the, but the, uh, the, the logic at Baltimore, you can see some heavy air quotes around the word logic. Uh, if I can, the logic here is that um, it, it seems to be um, you guys can't go on strike if we lock you out first. Ha ha. It's, it's the inverse of the old, you can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and it's important. It's, it seems to be important to ownerships in question to do all this when we're not paying as much attention and you don't lose spring training and you don't lose, uh, uh, you know, games played. Um, now, whether, whether you buy that, whether you buy that argument, I, I don't, but I, that seems to be, you know, um, yeah. I quote from the letter, we cannot allow an expired agreement to again cause an in-season in session in strike in a Miss World series like we experienced in 1994. We owe all you, our fans, better than that. Oh, yeah. well, well at, at, I agree with him about one thing. We are owed better <laughs> yes. than this idiocy. I mean, as you said, it seems like, you know, as near as I can tell to kind of answer your earlier question about the daylight, it seems like the most significant obstacle here is the questions of service time and free agency. Um, Also the expanded playoffs. I mean, that's not nothing. It's not nothing, but can't you see the players eventually coming around on that? I mean, I I feel like we're basically looking Mm. eventually at an NBA type playoff structure um, for Mm. baseball. It, It just seems like, you know, at the end of the day, if, if we accept the fact that obviously, you know, as we said, we're going to be on the player's side here, but everybody just wants to be richer than they are right now. Um, That's interesting. So the, the, yeah, people have mooted sort of an NBA type structure. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to pull in a couple of other sports here. So um, the NBA has a, you know, um, uh, has recently started doing sort of some version of, what major league baseball does in a wild card game. Mm-hmm. So the top six teams in each conference make it in automatically. And then the next four. So, uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, play a sort of like round Robin where if you're seven and eight, you only have to play one game to get in. If you're nine and 10, you have to win two games to have a chance to get in, um, kind of like a wild card thing. And then the traditional one versus eight, two versus seven structure starts. Um, but it's interesting to compare all this to the NFL, the NFL where like the players association is like way, way less powerful Mm -hmm. than major league baseball, where people's careers are much shorter, where you have fewer recognizable stars because people just can't keep their bodies in shape for long enough. The NFL has decided in all of their glorious intelligence, not only expand the playoffs, but also to expand play. So they moved what? from 16 to 17 games. This is the first season where they had 17 games. They, they, they thought, you know, you know what? We're, we're hearing about too many people being hurt for too much of the season. Let's add a game to the schedule to just make sure that the randomness of the injury gods is the only actual decider. It doesn't have nothing to do with talent. It nothing to do with team building. It's only if you can stay healthy for 17 games. Um, so it, it, it is interesting to like compare what's happening in other sports to 
Major League Baseball and to see kind of which pieces make logical sense to me from my couch at home to bring in. Um, expanding more regular season games does not make any sense. Expanding playoff games does make sense financially, as you say, everyone gets a little bit richer. Does it dilute the, the pennant a little bit? Does it dilute the sort of like being the best team over 162 games of the regular season? Maybe. I mean, it, more and more, it might be a situation where what you have to actually do is get hot for September and October. And then you're going to eventually be asking yourself the question, okay, so why do we need to play 162 games? That's going to happen in the NBA too. Because what's happening in the NBA is people who are like, it's actually really bad for us as athletes to have like back-to-backs where we have to fly 3,000 miles and be cooped up on a plane and then play another game the next day. Right. Especially, you know, for these incredibly um, finely balanced seven-footers who are like, <laughs> it's sort of a miracle that their knees work at all. <laughs> um, and there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that that rest is actually the factor, like the the um, performance factor that it's the next untapped thing. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to expand the playoffs, does that not mean that you're devaluing the regular season? Would that in turn not mean that we're now talking about a 140-game season just to get us to the playoffs? Would that not in turn start to devalue some of the records that we have for a 162-game season? And then I can just see like traditionalists being like, get off my lawn. <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah. And then it, I mean, yeah, it, it gets totally all the way downy real fast. I do, <laughs> I do wonder a little bit though, if, if we think about this idea of shortening the season, other than the major, major market teams that are always successful. So if we think about, I'll just pick a team out of thin air, the Orioles. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, as a team that is a major market team that's always successful, hold on. <laughs> no, no, as one of the other thens. <laughs> oh, the other Okay, good. You know, the Orioles, aka the other thens. <laughs> um, the also Rams. The, <laughs> more like the also Strolls. <laughs> um, if we think about the Orioles and a lot of teams like them, realistically, out of 81 home games, so few of those games are even half sold. Yeah. And I wonder a little bit if you... Scarcity. If you made it so that there were only, say, uh, what, 70 home games a year in this 140-game model that you're proposing, would the individual in-game revenue go up enough um, that the owners could be convinced of something like that certainly if you then compare it to potential playoff revenue where i mean you and i uh were at a playoff game together and i still think that that pitch that struck out alex rodriguez in a packed camden yards was the loudest single place i've ever been in my entire life like oh my god if 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 you if you if you were in fact trading 10 regular season games for the potential to have a, a fighting chance at five or three home playoff games. Mm-hmm. That's probably worth. The, that's probably actuarially a good, a good, a good decision. Can I also share um, that I think our this is an idea that we came up with between four and eight years ago, um, <laughs> but our Alamo Draft House model of smaller stadiums with 
more yes. concierge services at every individual seat. I still think that's the way to go. But isn't that in some ways where baseball stadiums are headed? I mean, it's definitely where like new soccer stadiums are headed and it's kind of where new football stadiums are headed. Um, the, the ones that are being built for like in LA, for example, are definitely fewer seats, definitely not like trying to be the big house in Michigan, like where you can cram a hundred thousand people in there, but no one can actually see the play. Well, I did see there was news this week about, um, the long awaited new stadium for the Oakland athletics. Um, finally some good news for athletics fans, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) before the lockout, um, were informed that, uh, their manager had left um, and uh, that all of their players would be (laughs) not far behind him. Um, But that new stadium, I believe the design spec is for a maximum crowd of something like 34,000 people, which is still a massive number of people, but it's a far cry from the you know when Oriole Park opened and it was going to be capacity of forty eight thousand people were like oh it's so cozy and intimate yeah yeah I mean and, and I think that there's there's like um, the question of multi use venues mm-hmm. so like can you use this thing so like Barclays Center here in Brooklyn where you can go to see a concert there and also see a basketball game. Um, and it's sort of structured so that 360 days of the year, you can have something crazy happening there with a lot of people. Um, seem to be settling on a lower number of total people mm-hmm. in exchange for, yeah, this sort of may, maybe slightly more personalized, better food, better drink, some reason to get off your couch and your 65 inch television and go down and watch the game in person. Like it's gotta be, it's gotta be again with the air quotes, Baltimore on worth it um, in, in, in different ways. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I could imagine a reduction in games as long as we're not talking, as long as we're not talking strictly about record books and that sort of thing. And we can start using advanced metrics more to say, you know, what matters isn't, the total number of home runs hit in a season, but the average of home runs per at bat or whatever the like most impressive metric is going forward where you can sort of start to isolate it a little bit from um, just pure counting stats Yeah, uh, for those people who care, care about comparing eras and comparing sort of like collections of statistics. I could see, I could see that working. And, you know, frankly, my connection to baseball is such that um, I'm not going to miss those 20 games. <laughs> um, here's a sad... Who would? Who, who, who would miss those 20 games? That's the question. Like, I... how, how, many, how many baseball fans right now are, are catching every game? I think it's a lot. I, I think yeah. it's a lot. And, and I think... I think at least personally, I, I feel like I have to tread lightly here because I can remember a period of my life from not too long ago when I really did make a point of watching every game and felt bad if I missed one. Um, mm. Yeah. I, I think that is true for a lot of fans. 
I think. But do 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 you think that do you think that that feeling would like do do you think that you would feel the absence of ten more days over the course of your summer and even even in that version of Sam who felt like I'm 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 in I'm going to watch all 162 games would you not have felt or I don't know would you can you put yourself back in that moment enough to be like would I have been bummed to lose right. I don't know. Well, it's a few four game series become three game series over the course of the year. It's interesting. I think I would probably experience it as something being taken away from me. Whereas if Mm. there, if there had never been, if they were talking about adding new games to the season, I would probably feel like the experience was being cheapened somehow. I mean, hundred percent. Maybe human psychology is just such that we will always look for um, how this is a dilution of the thing we love rather than an enrichment, even if yeah. objectively it, it seems to be one or the other. Um, it's making me think about, I was talking to my brother last night about how he used to love the Looney Tunes episode, the Barber of Seville. Sure. Which now you can go on YouTube and find in, you know, three clicks of your uh, touchpad. But he was remembering that the only way he used to be able to watch Barber of Seville is if he was homesick from school and was watching Nickelodeon or whatever Looney Tunes was on during the day. And if whoever programmed the show just happened to have decided today was a Barber of Seville day. And it was to the point that he had memorized, I didn't remember this, but uh, he was reminding me that Looney Tunes at the beginning color of the curtains in the backdrop you know those that those concentric Whoa. circles that the, the looney tunes words would speed out of those would the color of the curtains would change based on the episode and the spacing of the circles would be different and he had memorized which color and what spacing corresponded with barbara of seville so he would <laughs> the it would be looney tunes o'clock and the show would come on and he would cross his fingers and toes and just hope against hope that it was going to be barbara of seville and then it wasn't, and but it made Barber of Seville all that much more special because he he just hmm. knew that it was out there, and and the scarcity of it was made it live hmm. even larger in his memory. Um, and so it, I assume I assume you, as a veteran podcaster, have uh, experienced the joy that is the butterfly effect. Oh yes, yeah. So obviously, my brain um, moves directly to internet pornography. <laughs> Uh, from that delightful story about your brother as a child watching Looney Tunes. It, you've um, always been um, abject degenerate, Alan Smith. <laughs> but I do think that, like, yeah, I think I think that that scarcity question um, is is important. And um, what is so interesting to me about the way that sports are moving into this sort of twenty four hour and constant news cycle is seeing how different sports are trying to steal headlines, steal attention, steal eyeballs. So uh, in the Premier League, um, we're now this week and next week are international breaks. So all the club players go play for their international teams to do World Cup qualifiers and stuff. And the club teams just take this window. But it's also January which means it's one of two times during the course of the year when you can have trades. There's a transfer window that opens over the summer, and there's a transfer window that opens in January. Now, this 
would be a fascinating, like there's no soccer players association. I don't know how the hell this is decided on. <laughs> it's like multiple different um, leagues and the German transfer window and the Italian transfer window don't totally line up and da 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 da. But for me, as a Premier League fan, what happens now till the end of January is actually as riveting and as important as the games. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually refreshing and going back to it's the hot stove. That's what it is. It's the hot stove. That's the perfect sure. analogy. Yeah. It's how excited you are to kind of watch what's happening at the winter meeting to see who you might end up signing and who how how the team will look going into the next section of play. Um, but the Premier League, either intentionally or through dumb luck, has managed to to fill this down window with no actual time with <laughs> something else to keep my attention riveted at them. And I, and I wonder like <laughs> there are so many games and there are so many um, like things for me to check in on. I'm not sure that sports scarcity is actually a thing that anyone will embrace. Hmm. I'm not, I'm not sure whether or not like, I I th- I think we have I can't think of a story yet about too much sports driving people away. Um right. although maybe baseball is that story. Maybe maybe the baseball regular season is actually that story and it's just like not not necessarily couched that way. It could be. This is also making me causing a a, a philosophical question to formulate in my mind. Alan Smith, who is baseball really for? Because we're, we think about all of these in the modern era, right? Local television. Well, okay, so this is the thing, right? <laughs> who actually, this is more true over the long term rather than right now. But if you think about it, the vast majority of people don't, just as they don't sit down and watch every game of the regular season, they're not watching every pitch of every game. So most people are watching condensed highlights on MLB.com or whatever afterwards, or they're just tuning in for a few minutes during the broadcast. Um, And then increasingly, when you go to a game at new stadiums, there's all this stuff there that's designed for you to not watch the game and do th- these things instead, like go get an artisanal cheeseburger from the food court. or Sports betting. Just came to New York City. Live in-game sports betting. There you go. And so if you think of, obviously, you know, this will all take some time to play out, but it's interesting if we go back to this question of, you know, the labor dispute that's currently happening. In a lot of ways, the people with the most vested interest in keeping some guardrails and close rules about the so-called integrity of how the game is actually played are the players. Because more and more, they're the only ones who are really and truly focused on what's happening at every single moment of the game. The rest of the ecosystem is increasingly designed to distract attention from what's happening at every single moment of the game. So, I don't know. In my mind, I feel like that that means we should listen 
more to the players in terms of their point of view on on how it should all be structured because they're the ones who have to live every pitch most of us are disincentivized from living every pitch do you think that the players um who are not on the houston astros really came out hard i think that they did i just trying to remember did they really come out hard against that particular cheating thing other players were pretty outraged about that right they were extremely outraged um so it wasn't just sort of like a fan thing other players were pissed about that they were super mad they were super mad including like you know the rarely heard from mike trout would be crown prince of of baseball went on the record and said you know i think this is bullshit and they should be punished even our boy nick markakis who you know is similarly sort of reticent to speak in public and was usually sort of soft-spoken was very aggressive. I forget exactly what he said, but it was something about how they should like get their asses beat or something. <laughs> that's um, a very, that's a very, um, I, I bring it up because it seems to really like underline your point. Like, um, if, if that were more sort of a fan, like if, if the people in the arena still care the most about winning and therefore competitive balance and therefore like, whatever happened with the Atlanta Braves during this particular off season or not, sorry, not off season, but trade deadline, which allowed them to stockpile the people that they would need for a world series run, et cetera, et cetera. Like that discussion would be in her closet. That discussion we can choose to edit that or not. <laughs> that discussion would be in her closet. We'll leave it there. Baltimoreans. You decide <laughs> <laughs> what Alan meant. <laughs> uh this is the hello frankie hi hello oh we've got a cameo here folks we have a we have a um uh a 20 month year old joining us for just a moment frankie um, frankie what is your position on the lockout no comment from frankie the question is only can the players continue to have enough of a i'm not necessarily planning that the owners have this right but enough of a perspective on the sort of like overall health of the game to be trusted to yeah. to run the the big finances quote unquote well and to go back to where we started all of this it seems like a significant amount of what the players are concerned about is getting that sweet sweet free agency money faster right um, so I don't want to give them too much credit for being stalwart guardians of the integrity of the of the sport. But here's another. I mean, I think we've talked about this on Baltimore before. But here's another question for you: what What do you think? What What part of fandom seems to continue to have your average take home fan allying as much, or if not more, with ownership than with the players? Why, why do you think it is that it seems like you're at maybe Baltimoreans and Baltimoreans faithful excluded, but that the average discussion whenever one of these sort of sports things comes up is it's like even Steven at best and maybe also blaming the players more than management? I think – I don't want to be reductive, but I think it is honestly this very simple and understandable – misconception that 
players are overpaid relative to ownership. I think everybody would agree that professional athletes in any sport make an absurd amount of money. But because player salaries and free agent contracts are so robustly reported in the news yeah, so discussed. every offseason and record-setting contracts are signed and then speculation pushes those numbers up even further and further as other similar players hit the market, et cetera, et cetera. The amount of money that players earn is very deeply ingrained in our minds. We know that Corey Seager made three, got signed a $325 million contract. We know that these players are averaging tens of millions of dollars every season. And it's not just one player. It's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And so the drumbeat of that feels so loud that it drowns out the truly outsized wealth of ownership. And this is... This is it's understandable that people don't think this way. Like you and I are people who waste vast sums of time on the internet during the day looking into this stuff. And and it wasn't even really drummed in or honed in on for me until MLB Trade Rumors did this kind of cool subversive thing recently, I thought, where they published a list of the net worth of all the MLB team owners. There were only, mm-hmm. I believe, two Alan Smith whose net worth was south of a billion. And even yeah. then... It was high, high, five hundred million, six hundred million, yeah. something like that. This is astonishing, astonishing amounts of wealth that, to this point at least, no major league player has even approached. Right? We haven't yet had our first four hundred million dollar contract. Um, I also think you're. I also think you, you. There's a real. I mean, there is this interesting thing where the amount um, that Peter Angelos paid for the Baltimore Orioles, um, which was $173 million in 1993, is just north of the amount that he gave Chris Davis as a, <laughs> in a single contract. Uh, right. <laughs> over, over 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, $173 million used to be um, what it cost to buy one of these teams in whole, whole mm-hmm. cloth. But now the team is worth estimated 1.43 billion um and i think that it's worth that for a couple of reasons right one reason it's worth that is because as we talked about last week it's a speculative market there are only x number of mlb teams so if you want to be someone who spends your money uh on owning a major league baseball team you have to pay through the nose to have that opportunity but they also do still make their owners money I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting is that every single ownership group cries poverty at every available opportunity, um, you know, and they're always saying like, oh, we can't afford da 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 and da 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 and then, and I have yet to see any evidence that that is anywhere close to true. I think it's just something that we have drummed into our heads that the Orioles are not a, you know, we, not, we don't have the resources to compete with the Yankees. We don't have the resources to compete with um, uh, the Dodgers. And I I don't think that if you look at – I think that if you look at the bottom line of the Baltimore Orioles accounting every year, uh, the Angeloses are making more money than they are spending. Um, and I think that that is true of almost every baseball team 
with a few uh, notable historical exceptions, and those teams are no longer with us. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, I, Hat tip, the, the, Montreal the sort of like, Expos. <laughs> I, 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 do, I do think that there is sort of like a, to go along with the incredible focus on the individual, incredibly expensive uh, star player contracts, there's also this drumbeat that ownership has been successful in in crying poverty right. that I don't think is accurate and I don't think it's honest. Yeah. But it is something that is sort of like constantly in our discussion. And I think it integrates itself more into your average fan's consciousness than we even notice yep. or expect. And I think there's one other piece in all this, which goes back to where we started this whole conversation, which is usually, I think historically, when there has been a work stoppage, it has been because the players go on strike. And mm -hmm. so if you're not really following the ins and outs of the debate, it looks like the players are refusing to play. And if you look at that as a fan, you'd go, and who wants the players to play? You'd be like, why are they depriving me of this thing that I love? Um, which is why I think it's so important to focus on the fact that this situation is a lockout on behalf of the owners. It's not the players right. did not go on strike. It's that the, it, the owners are legitimately to blame for the fact that there is no meaningful forward progress right now because they are the ones who initiated this aggressive um, bargaining maneuver. Um, so I think all of those things have something to do with it. And then I think also, because this is Baltimoreans, we, we have to talk about this. At a deeper level, it has <laughs> to do with the fact that we kind of instinctively defer to and respect titans of industry who by dint of the fact that they own big profitable things we as a culture tend to assume that they must be fundamentally right about everything at the end of the day as as we are all our ourselves temporarily inconvenienced billionaires yes <laughs> 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 the new title of our podcast, Temporarily Inconvenienced Billionaires. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think um, I think it would be very fascinating to be able to conduct the social experiment of actually purchasing the Baltimore Orioles and converting them to a nonprofit serving the city of Baltimore, because I think that that would do a fascinating thing to this power dynamic, and it would actually invert the power dynamic such that ownership would be much more the people for whom these people were performing. And that in turn would maybe actually line up reality a little bit more with how I think fans conceive reality. Um, so I think that's just another way in which our, our, our meta plan here to return sports ownership to something that looks a little bit more communal would actually just be the world more aligning with how we perceive the world to be. You know us, folks, we are nothing if not consistent. That is with not releasing episodes as it is <laughs> with the foundational project of this entire enterprise. Um, before we go... I think we've probably been talking too long to get into the whole sleep and rest question, right? Well, let's save that for next time uh, All right. and leave people wondering whether or not there will in fact be a next time. <laughs> um, but before we go, Smith, tell the people about your definitive sports ownership ranking project. Uh, well, last week, um, as you remember, we kind of got into the question of 
Peter Angelos and whether or not he was a quote unquote good owner. Um, and that has been sticking with me. And I was trying to, I've had, I've had a bunch of conversations with other sports fans in my life spanning, not just baseball, but, but other, other walks of, of sports fandom. And it made me realize that um, much like say, for example, there is a definitive ranking of the best Taylor Swift songs and the best, um, you know, music videos of every generation. Obviously, these are subjective things, but let's go ahead and put some science behind this. So I have started a spreadsheet, um, and I am ranking every professional sports owner in what I'm considering the big four sports. Apologies to hockey. That means we're talking Premier League soccer, we're talking Major League Baseball, we're talking National Football League, and we're talking NBA. What I would love from you, Baltimoreans, is any input to the following categories. I'm going to list them off to you. We're ranking every Major League Baseball owner in five categories. Those are political. Is this person or group supportive of regressive and conservative political stances? Yes, this is a naked uh, Allen-based point, but I would love your case on a scale of one to ten, with ten being great and one being wretched, um, where the where different major league baseball owners rank on politics. Um, I want to know, are they good at running the team? So investing in good players, building a winning record, um, spending money wisely, that sort of thing. And do they hire, you know, do they hire the right people to make good decisions? Um, Sadly, there's often an inverse relationship between these first two categories. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, uh, do they care about the city or area? Or is this just a speculative device? To, um, that's our third category. And, and this to me is like kind of the placeholder for have they recently threatened to move the team to Montreal? Uh, or, <laughs> uh, you know, the guy who was trying to get Tampa Bay Rays to be the Rexpos um, and play half their games in Montreal actually lives in upstate New York. Ah, how if I were a Tampa, if I were a Tampa Bay Rays fan, that would piss me off. I mean, again, there are none of those, but that would piss me off so much. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, to be fair to that organization, they do invest their money well, and they do seem to be good at running a team. Okay, so we've got politics. We've got good at running a team. We have, do they care about the city or area? Um, then we get into category four. Did they make their money in comparatively savory ways? Um, even granting that every time that you make a billion dollars, you've probably stepped on a bunch of necks to do it. Uh, I do think that there are sort of gradients on a scale of one to 10 with how savory, even if we just look at it as a, within a category, how savory their, their financial cho choices were on their way to a billion dollars. And then the final category is just a way to kind of um, add or to, to distract from particular people, um, the intangible ick factor uh, of, of different sports owners. So as a baseline here, um, we're going to take a historical owner, Donald Sterling of the NBA, the Clippers. Um, Donald Sterling has over these five categories um, a total of 0. 0.8. We gave him a <laughs> one in politics, a one in good at running the company on a scale of one to ten, uh, one in do they care about the city, a one in did they make their money in um, in savory ways, and the good old zero uh, in an in intangible ick factor for for uh, Donald Sterling. So. 
that may be the lowest benchmark. Um, I urge you to write to us or um, tweet at us if you think that there should be a lower person than Donald Sterling. And then our current league leader right now in my rankings are, no surprise to anyone, the Green Bay Packers, um, who, of course, because the Green Bay Packers are owned by the city of Green Bay, uh, a lot of these things tend upwards um, in a lot of these categorizations. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think there's a lot of gray area between are you Donald Sterling and are you the Packers? And I would love yeah. uh, you to tweet at us, at Morons if you have any information. Sam and I, obviously, we got the Angelo situation well handled. Um, but if there, are, if there are teams you follow or ownership groups that you happen to know something about, are you a prospect researcher? Have you uh, looked up these people because you want to ask them for money? Let us know uh, at Morons in any of those five categories, and I will be accepting um, all inputs in my ranking systems. I, of course, reserve the right to uh, final say on whether or not I, I personally am icked out by the, uh, by the actions of these um, recalcitrant billionaires. Yes, and uh, to note... It may seem counterintuitive, but as illustrated by Donald Sterling, a high ick factor in this case is actually good. Um, zero. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Right. So you do you do want tens. Ten is desirable in all or 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 good on Alan's long uh, arc of the moral universe. Yeah. Uh, and 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 ones are bad. Um, right. That's a that's a that's a fair point. You do, you do in fact want a ten in ick. Um, well, I guess I could invert that one. Nah, that's just going to make the math super complicated. No, 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 no. Uh, but we'll be we'll be um, um, tweeting out our eventual findings, and I have a series of graphs and pretty things, and I will be able to tell you definitively which city has the worst ownership groups over time, and, um, and maybe not historical, but uh, currently, which cities are saddled with the worst owners, and we'll have a we'll have an actual data driven mathematical comparison to back up all of our of our of our ramblings. Next time on the show, among other things, we will talk about the results of the Hall of Fame balloting for this year. Did Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling, and Roger Clemens get in? And if so, how do we feel about it? But before we end this broadcast, Alan, I have a question for you. Hit me. And that question is, what do you call former Oriole Don Baylor when he is putting his ex-boyfriend Jake Gyllenhaal on blast via power ballad. I don't know. Don Baylor Swift. Thank you so much, everybody. We will talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) The next time we do this thing. Baltimoreans. Baltimoreans.